Hello and welcome back to Equity, TechCrunch's venture capital-focused podcast where we unpack the numbers behind the headlines. This is our Wednesday show when we niche down to a single topic. Today, we are going to be digging into on-demand grocery delivery, instant grocery delivery, Europe in general. It's going to be an absolute blast, but I am not alone. I have the whole crew with me today. I have Natasha Moscarinas. Natasha, hello. Hey, bestie. Welcome back from vacation. It's good to be back from vacation. Three episodes in two days is exactly how TechCrunch <laughs> welcomes you back into the fold. We also have Danny Crichton, one of TC's managing editors, a.k.a. one of the taskmasters aboard the great ship TechCrunch. How are you doing, Danny? I'm doing all right. I'm looking forward to some more marsupial adjectives being batted about today. Yes, and if you don't get that joke, listen to yesterday, uh, no Monday's show all about the Intuit deal, which was one of our meanest episodes in months, which I thought was pretty good. But we have a special guest, as I discussed on Monday, we have Steve-O here back. Uh, Steve was a long-term tech cruncher, one of my favorite authors, and actually the person I wrote my very first tech run story with way back in the day. And he has left us, Steve, and you have gone over to Zap. So first of all, one, thank you for being here. And two, how the hell are you? I'm, I'm really good. Yeah. I'm embracing change, as they say, in startups and startups. Yeah. Doing really, really well. Well, you actually, you have a history of startups. You were a founder back in the day, if I recall correctly. Yeah, I've done loads of things. I was at TechCrunch. I left to do a startup as a founder. It didn't go too well, so I came back, and then I was eight and a half years back at TechCrunch. Oh my gosh! Before I said goodbye, then yeah, yeah. So great to like be reunited. Yeah, <laughs> with the crew. Well, I'm looking forward to you coming back to TechCrunch in three years, which will be the <laughs> uh, the circle of life, I think. <laughs> Briefly though, yeah, you work at Zap. So first of all, tell people what Zap is, and two, what is your your role there, so we know how to kind of like contextualize what you say. Yeah, sure. So we're based in London, UK, and we are an on-demand convenience startup. So essentially we deliver snacks, drinks, essential groceries, other household items, including like over-the-counter medicine, 24-7, delivered in minutes to your door. Sort of broad customer promises within 20 minutes. And just for a contextualization for the kind of the American audience out there, this sounds kind of like a, a, a GoPuff of the UK, if you will. I think we're similar to GoPuff in the sense that we are targeting convenience rather than saying that we're trying to replace like planned ahead grocery shopping, right? Because some other competitors in the space are very much going after the weekly kind of grocery shop, whereas we're definitely about when you need it or you want it right now. So that kind of convenience position. So I guess in that sense, yeah, there's some similarities, although we're doing things in a very UK, European way on a number of fronts. So yeah, I'd, I'd, I'd push back a little at the absolute direct comparison. I was not trying to be, to be clear, absolute. Um, <laughs> I was trying to be directional, but we'll get back to that in just a second. Uh, Natasha, there has been news afoot in the space today, in fact, really early this week. So talk us through the latest from the kind of on-demand world. So two things happened this morning that I think really validate us doing this entire show. We saw one startup, if, if we could even call it a startup, raise capital. So Gatir, which is based in Turkey, topped $1 billion in fundraising with its latest deal. And now it's about a $7.5 billion business, does a lot more than instant delivery. We saw a ton of money go into that company. It's probably the name I see other than Instacart in my day-to-day -day activities and kind of like understanding the space. And we also saw notes on a reported consolidation. Grocery startup Wheezy is said to potentially have a sale as well. So we're seeing kind of both ends of like the capital or consolidate game happening just in the same news cycle this morning. And Steve, just for everyone out there, Wheezy is in the same market as, as Zap, but Wheezy is more grocery focused, that weekly shop that you mentioned earlier versus Zap, which is more convenience, right? Yeah, Wheezy are definitely positioning themselves as much more about, hey, you don't need to do planned ahead grocery anymore. You can grocery shop as often as you like, which is a different model to the convenience in the sense of the products you stock and you push 
and also the use cases and how you market them. So that they're kind of there's definitely overlap in the product ranges, but very different positioning. Okay, so Danny, we have a list of all the companies that we could find prepping for the show, and they're they're myriad. And before you get mad about their names, Danny, can you just run us through a couple of the uh, the headline titles and kind of what they do? Yes, yeah, so the most notable one is Gorillas, uh, which is based in Berlin. Total funding three hundred thirty five million at a billion dollar valuation. And it is uh, supposedly, at least according to our notes, the fastest European startup to achieve unicorn status nine months post-launch. And that is something we've seen with a lot of these companies is that the valuations are extreme. So long-time delivery company, Delivery Hero. We also have Flink, which has raised $300 million. Zap, of course, we've just talked about. Deja, Jiffy, Kaju in France, and Joker, all sort of doing different pieces. I mean, there's a little bit of like a product matrix going on here. You have instant delivery, you have weekly delivery, you have food delivery, you have groceries. All those companies do different parts of the, the product matrix. But I, I think what's interesting is to see just how many entrants there are in Europe. I mean, it's it, it, granted, it's a, a continent that is really focused on food. Obviously, lots of different cultures, different vibes with each of the groceries in these different countries. But to see so many launch in just the last year or two really surprised me because that is not something I think we're seeing here in the United States. And yeah, it makes me question a lot about the differentiation and overlap. There are seemingly endless more to come. Steve, you said something earlier, which is that you guys are doing it in a very UK slash European way. Can you tell us more about what that means? So I always think of this business as it's a, it's a global business, but it's a local business, right? So you have to tailor the product offering very much to different local markets and different cities. But what I really meant was like a Zap, we're, we're using a different employment model, I, I believe. So our riders and our store workers are employed directly by us. So when we say we're full stack, we don't just mean we're the retailer and the delivery service. We mean in the full sense of the word that we employ all the parts of our business and they're all full members of our team. And again, I don't know how this compares to GoPuff, but... We also have built sustainability very much when they did go into our thinking in terms of um, the environmental impact that we have. So we're all electric fleet. We partner with a food sharing app called Olio for unsold food. Although obviously we're working to improve the supply chain so there shouldn't be any unsold food. And then also partnering with a startup called Planetly, which helps us track and offset our remaining carbon emissions. So I think it's quite a sort of European outlook around sustainability, but also employment models. Well, I think one of the things that's interesting, if you look at the first generation of grocery delivery, you had Instacart and some others out there. And what they were built on was this model of like no inventory or, you know, asset light models, which is they had freelancers going into traditional grocery stores, shopping on traditional shelves, putting together in bags and actually delivering the food. This yeah. new generation and wave is inventing, you know, what, what some people have dubbed dark stores, so actually building out local micro fulfillment centers in neighborhoods, much closer to folks, and, and actually really narrowing the product catalog. I mean, I don't know, Steve, I don't know if you're seeing that with, with Zap or yeah. how your approach yeah, is, yeah. but in some cases, people are only offering two or 3,000 items as opposed to the tens of thousands we're used to in a traditional grocery store. Yeah, so we're around 2,000 stews or items, but our thinking is that when you're targeting inconvenience, people don't need a, a massive product range. They just need the right kind of products when they need them, right? And the other thing is that it's very different to plan ahead. Planned ahead, you want that huge choice, right? Because you're in that mindset. And you also are much more price sensitive. Whereas in the sort of spontaneous or the urgent need, price sensitivity is less. And the product range doesn't need to be, you know, you don't need like five or 10 different choices of ice cream. You just need a couple of the great ones, right? Steve, I, I agree with you. 
but I don't agree on the ice cream point. I think that's one of the few places where I would actually demand a relatively broad skew list. <laughs> I think we stopped maybe four or five. I should say, you don't need 20 choices of ice cream. You only need five. <laughs> You've never met me, clearly. Because I think yeah. I need at least You haven't seen my freezer. But also, but also um, to the point about being acid light, I think one of the things we always say about Zap is that you're only going to win in this space if you can keep the customer promise of delivery within, in our case, 20 minutes for every single delivery as you scale, right? And you can only do that if you own the entire value chain. And so for us, it's about being in control of the, the whole customer journey. And we just don't think you can do that when you send gig economy workers into other people's stores. Beyond Zap, what are some of the startups or strategies, at least, that you're paying attention to? I'm sort of fascinated the way we're seeing grocery shopping being unbundled. Right. This idea that, you know, that you can now have a bunch of services that are best in class at only one slice of the overall grocery market. So again, when we think about Zap, I mean, convenience is a subcategory of grocery. Right. So we're doing that on demand convenience play. But it's interesting to see how other offerings. So there's like the supermarkets trying to do a big fight back to so their offering two hour delivery. So they're trying to sort of move into that space. And, and the other thing that's interesting is just seeing the, the way that some of the supermarkets are partnering with Deliveroo. So they're using like a, a marketplace platform and putting parts of their inventory onto these sort of marketplaces. So it's interesting to see whether consumers gravitate towards the pure play built from the ground up rapid delivery versus whether they're willing to take a degradation, what I would argue is a degradation in service, and also where the two hour slot fits in versus the 20 minutes. I would also point out that obviously we're seeing a lot of different styles uh, across the world. So in Korea, Coupang was famous for creating this model of what they call Don Delivery, where everything is sort of overnighted as long as you got it in by, I think, midnight or 11 p.m. the night before. I think what's interesting is if you think uh, a Walmart or CVS or Walgreens or some of these pharmaceutical giants in the U.S., many of them became these all-everything stores. You had some groceries, you had your health and wellness, you had prescriptions, and it was sort of like, you know, you can kind of get everything. It's somewhat convenient. It's kind of expensive because they kind of have everything in their local in your neighborhood. And I think a lot of this is migrating online, which begs the question for traditional retailers who have tried to maximize their sales by being that everything store for every customer and every need. What happens in a world where all that gets unbundled? You know, that your premium, you're willing to pay, I don't know, $12 for paprika because you're trying to make tacos and it's 6 p.m. and you don't want to spend an hour to get paprika at the store. But, you know, tacos without paprika, <laughs> terrible tacos. No one would be willing to do that. I'm, I'm sorry. Cumin is the key spice in, uh, cumin. in tacos. Well, you know, no, yeah. no one's stopping you from I your mean... cumin. Uh... <laughs> I'm like fine with salt. I just need salt. But... <laughs> but if you don't have salt, you should just... Well, never mind. If you're seeing unbundling, it's not just about what happens to the gigantic legacy players that try to do it all. It's also you should ask, which piece are you unbundling? And are you unbundling a piece that's potentially very profitable? Because then you're taking a slice of one of the more profitable parts of that original bundle. And I think in the case of convenience, one of the things that some of the supermarket bosses in the UK have said, they've been like, blah, 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 you're never going to make enough money because the average order value or the typical basket size of a kind of mini supermarket convenience store in the UK is X. And we're seeing a significant increase in that. Like our average order value is way better than those numbers that are quoted out in the press by the incumbents. And I think the reason why that is the case, is we all know this, because we, you know, we write about this stuff, or I did, and you guys do, which is that when you move something online and it becomes orders and managing more convenient, people tend to use it more, right? And I think historically, a lot of groceries have moved online in a really bad way where the experience hasn't improved, whether that be having to pre-book delivery slots, getting different items to the ones you ordered, 
because the supermarket didn't know what was in stock, right? Or meal kits um, services, they feel great, right? Get all the ingredients you need to cook a meal. But then you've got to, still got to cook the meal around the schedule of the supplier, right? So you're rearranging your life around that of the online grocery. But in the case of these rapid delivery companies, they are organizing their entire business and their entire chain around the busy lives of the customer. And so thereby, when it moves online, it actually gets better. And I think that's what we're seeing at Zap. Steve, I mean, one of the questions we had before we got on board the show was we were talking about alcohol delivery. And I was saying that, you know, if there's ever a category that seems to work well with instant and has high margins, you're willing to pay a lot is it's alcohol for some folks, it, it's weed or whatever the case may be. Are people willing to pay a premium for spices and basic, you know, necessity groceries? So I think that speaks back to my original point, right? There are probably two positionings. And there's those that are trying to replace grocery shopping versus those that are more the convenience type play. So I think people are willing to pay a premium for all of those different types of products by getting them when they need it most. But the question then is which ones are going to make a profit? Which ones have the margins? And again, it's no like coincidence that we picked this very specific convenience position in use cases around different uh, moments in people's lives where they're buying products that do have the margins that are going to push the average order value up to make sense from a business case point of view, right? And we're seeing that already at Zat. It's resonating really, really well in London quite consistently in terms of those AOVs. Yeah. Yeah, and we're not, even, we're not even expensive. It's not really about being like premium. It's just about like not having a race to the bottom on the products you're competing on. Yeah, and AOV is uh, average order value, I presume, Steve? Yeah, average order value. So the two key numbers you want to watch, like average order value which is like the basket size because at some point it needs to get high enough to absorb the delivery, right, the delivery cost. And then you have to look at obviously the usual, which is like retention. And order frequency as well, probably. Yeah, order frequency, although, yeah, of course that helps. But you just want to make sure that on a unit economic level, you want to get as many of those orders paying for themselves in terms of that cross subsidies for the delivery. Because we charge like £1.99 yeah. for delivery. Everyone's super competitive on the delivery fee. And we're able to do that and make that work because of the average order value combined with the efficiencies of having our own, our own riders and being very clever about how we allocate those resources. But in the end, the, the real metric that we watch obsessively is do customers love the service? Do they come back? Because in the end, I think that's how you win, right? It's not about like vouchering. It's not like overly aggressive, like competing on price. It's basically competing on good old fashioned customer experience. Yeah, I, I think that's dead on because I've used Instacart for grocery delivery over the years. And I never actually particularly liked it because of the stuff that we mentioned earlier about them not knowing what's in store, delivery windows. It, it became such a hassle and more expensive that it just didn't become worth it. But the other day, I really needed some ibuprofen because I had this really terrible headache. And so I used the Uber Eats convenience delivery thingy and I paid some exorbitant amount of money to have this brought to my house, like $25 to have like one bottle of aspirin brought. But you know what? It freaking saved my day. And I was so happy to pay for it. I had zero price sensitivity so, for that good. And so to me, like the, the idea that you're describing of like there being different categories makes sense. Like this is a point that most people miss. Okay, before these full stack built from the ground up rapid delivery companies, like before they sprung up in the last year, right? Consumers were already ordering like a shed load of CPG, consumer packaged goods things like over-the-counter medicine, from these marketplaces like the Deliveroo and the Uber Eats of the world, right? So the consumer behavior is already there for those kind of use cases. Then if any of you have ordered like ice cream at midnight, right, off one of these platforms and paid like an exorbitant price for it. So in a sense, one of the things that we're reacting to is existing consumer behavior that was already running on top of rails that were never built for that use case, whereas we're built bespoke 
to do that on-demand convenience. And I think that's also interesting. I want to talk a little bit about consumer habits shifting more broadly, but specifically in this post-pandemic landscape, how much do we think we're going to see consumers actually not just catching up, but changing or beating where companies are today and what they want for instant delivery? Yeah, I mean, that's one everybody asks, right? Like, we've seen an acceleration of take-up of kind of the digitization of the groceries market in general. Right. And in the UK, there's been some quite striking figures, but kind of the, during the peaks of lockdown, like how much that shifted and, and kind of the percentage of online went up significantly. It's definitely not dropped down very much, if at all. And I think the, the use case is like when and truly here to stay. But I think it's not necessarily going to be as fast as it was during the, like the peak of the peak of the pandemic. Yeah. But that said, I do think it gets back to my central argument, which is historically when a service moves offline to online, if the customer experience actually gets better and more convenient, even if what you're selling is convenience in the first place, like then it tends to resonate and I think it's here to stay. I was actually going to ask like Alex or Danny if either of you can think of sectors or eras in tech where this has happened in the past where it's something where it just comes down to customer experience and that will be what wins. Is it ride sharing? I don't, yeah, I don't know. Yeah, ride hailing was the okay. first thing we thought of there because like I, I used to actually like, cause I'm old, I used to like call the taxi company and be like, can you pick me up at 2am to go to the airport? And then they would be <laughs> like, they would be some garbly gook and then they wouldn't come. And the moment you could pull out your phone on demand and order a car, your life actually changed. My, my parents flew into town. I didn't wake my spouse up to drive me to the airport at two o'clock in the morning. I just knew that there was going to be an, an Uber available for some amount of money. Yeah. It was expensive, but like it was it was the obvious choice. So that changed my life and I haven't gone back. Well, I, I would argue all the startups since 2008 have been about user experience, right? In many ways, every single one was an API layer, whether it's on the enterprise or the consumer side, whether it's buying stuff online, buying taxis, being able to make a phone call, messaging, you know, chat apps, it doesn't matter. Like all of it was built on making the user experience as delightful and as simple as possible. And I agree with Steve's point a long time ago, which was, you know, once you make convenience easier, every little friction you remove has a disproportionately large impact on people's purchase habits. You know, what we found even with something like Extra Crunch, removing a single screen from the checkout process can oftentimes do way more. You know, if you remove like one fifteenth, you get like double the sales. And it makes no sense. You're like, well, now there's 14 instead of 15, but you'd be amazed at the numbers you're dealing with when you're dealing with conversions, anything with money online, that the conversion rates skyrocket as soon as you remove each little bit of friction. I mean, that's been the thesis behind Checkout.com and Fast and a bunch of other companies that are working just to improve that the checkout screen alone in e-commerce because of Danny's point. But bringing this back to our topic, Steve, how long do you think venture interest will stay as high as it is in this space? Because you mentioned that the pace of change might slow. And you've covered VC for you know a thousand years. So how long will this period of time in which everyone can raise seemingly infinite money uh, last? I think it's got a long, long way to go yet. But I also think we're already seeing some consolidation, right? I don't think the appetite is going to drop as long as the you know the metrics for each individual company look good, right? So it really is about the basics. But I do think that that it speaks to the, not just the macro trend of this offline to online grocery market, which is going. You know, which is very, very exciting in lots of different parts of the bundle to refer to our earlier conversation. But I also think in the case of what we're doing more specifically around convenience, convenience is like one of the last areas of e-commerce that hasn't gone online, certainly in the UK. Furthering on like the VC interest point a little bit, I think there is, even if there's still interest and for, for a long time, there seems to be a little bit more pressure, or at least questioning on will this ever turn a sustainable profit? And so I am thinking we're going to see that consolidation point you made, Steve, happen a lot more as startups struggle to balance out all the different 
tensions of delivery at scale in a way that is different than before. Like it won't just be fundraise after fundraise. Some of them will definitely have to like face the music at some point. Yes. And while we're sure, Steve, that Zap is going to be incredibly <laughs> lucrative on both a unit economics and aggregate corporate level, not everyone in the space is going to do well. So how long until consolidation comes? Is it, you know, late 2021? Is it 2022? Well, no, so in the UK, it's already happening, right? There's already been several acquisitions in the UK, but I don't think there's anything. Okay. As much as this market is very unusual by the speed at which it's developing and the speed at which the dynamics are changing in terms of who's getting funded, acquisitions, mergers, or what have you. I don't think there's anything particularly unusual about the space in the broader sense of that when you have seven, eight, nine, ten competitors all jumping in at roughly the same time, then what you have is, I think, two, two things that are going to go on, which is which ones are going to execute well, and they hopefully will be the ones that survive and can, be, and can raise further funding rounds. But you also have the kind of weird dynamics, especially in a market like in Europe, which is a market where there's also American investors, which we're backed by two very good VC firms, one American, Lightspeed, and an Atomico in Europe, is like just the, the dynamic of fundraising, which is that in the end, if there seems to be some companies that are getting better funds than others, often the ones that raise at the wrong time or raise less drop out, right? Yeah. So I think it's about execution and just the usual VC kind of dynamics. I, I honestly, even though it is a very fast industry and there's lots of headlines like every few days, I don't think that's particularly unusual, right? Mm -hmm. If you have X number of entrants all at once, it stands to the reason that just because of the nature of venture capital and the fact that it's an outlier model that some are going to drop out earlier than others, right? And then some are going to go on like 10, 20 year journey. And, and I will say, because this often gets missed, like our 10, 20 year vision is to build the most efficient and sustainable supply chain that is capable of getting products that people need to millions of people faster than any other existing supply chain today. And that's a massive long-term vision. And that, isn't, that doesn't get captured in the get what you want delivered in 20 minutes. So, Steve, how acquisitive then is Zap going to be as other companies that might be competitors to some degree struggle in the next you know, 12, 18 months? Are you guys going to look to go out there and buy stuff or are you going to just let things fade away that don't survive? <laughs> No comment. <laughs> I think when you're looking at any kind of merger acquisition, you have to work out what it is you're acquiring. And I, I can't speak for Zara, as you know, I don't know where that direction is going. But I think that when you look at some of the already, some of the acquisitions that happened, the M&A activity, it's interesting to see, I think, when one of the recent deals was announced, it was actually alluded to in the press release that they primarily made the acquisition for the dark stores. So as a kind of very quick win yeah. to capture some additional real estate, right? And, and you know, we know this is like, you're in the business of covering VC, I used to be, that's not really a meaningful acquisition, right? That's something that goes to just kind of, you know, a shortcut because that company could have gone out and acquired those types of properties. It takes a bit of time to sort of find the right sites and then, you know, then convert them into a dark store, but it's not, do you know what I mean? It's not, they're not really buying something. Huge. Yeah, it's it, it's like the real estate version of an aqua hire. You're just aqua hiring their dark stores. Yeah, I mean, I, yeah, I couldn't a prop 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 Yeah, Steve, because I do have you here and I have known you for so long, I am going to punish you a little bit. So tell us about the uh, the unit economics of Zap and how they're changing over time. <laughs> I mean, we wouldn't obviously, you know, we wouldn't disclose that info, but they're looking good. They're looking very very robust and they're looking, you know, very encouragingly consistent in terms of. It isn't a case of that we started out with a certain group of customers and it worked in one particular area of, of London. It's staying across London. We're also in Amsterdam, in, in the Netherlands, that's doing really, really well. So I think we already see enough proof points 
that the model is working here in, in the UK. But we also pushed back because the model has already been proven to work elsewhere. Yeah. Right? I think GoPath have gone on record saying they're profitable in any city they've been in for more than 18 months. And I think, you know, again, we people forget this. We're less than a year old. You're a baby. Yeah, we were, named, <laughs> we were named like the fastest growing startup in Europe by headcount in the first six months of this year. The thing about the, the GoPuff analogy is that they're, they're possibly profitable on a, on a per market basis. But when you take into account corporate costs, uh, they're, they're super unprofitable. And this has been the case with Uber forever. And so I, I'm slightly leery of that stack because I, I think it lets businesses that are less attractive sound better than they are. As a whole, maybe I'm being unfair, Steve. That's just kind of like my read because the information reported that GoPuff had, I think this is 2020, like revenues of like 340 million and like they had negative EBITDA of 150 million, which is pretty unprofitable, you know, as a whole. So if markets are profitable, huzzah, but like it doesn't seem to solve the, the larger picture of economics. Yeah, but the pushback is that obviously it depends what journey you're on, right? How much of that you're reinvesting, how much you're spending on acquisition. So, you know, I mean, again, we're like, we're, less, we're a baby. Less than a year old. A very expensive baby, though, Steve. You raised a hundred million dollars. <laughs> I mean, like you, you, you're a baby, but you're you know a, a very wealthy one. Yeah, we're well capitalized, which is great. They stood us very well. <laughs> but it's but it's how you deploy the money, and it's also we're on a long term journey to build a completely new kind of supply chain. I think again, people underestimate that, and we're we're very very like excited about the long term journey that we're on. I know that a lot of companies say that, but obviously, I'm privy now to a lot of insight. Information in revolution, and it's it's definitely I think one of the reasons why I joined Zap is I'm totally brought into the long term vision. But now I'm here, I get to see it day to day what those long term decisions look like and where that money is being deployed. And obviously, with my ex journal hat on, sort of really intrigued and interested in, in around how the capital is being deployed into what I call real long term infrastructure investments that will pay dividends further down the line. And so that that's how I look at these things. Well, if you do end up becoming disgruntled, uh, you know where to leak all those plans. Uh, Alex.Wilhelm <laughs> at TechCrunch.com. We'd appreciate it. Steve, thank you for coming on. We will have you back on the next time you guys raise $100 million. We can ask why. And in the meantime, this has been Equity. Thank you all. And we're back Friday morning. Goodbye. Goodbye.